hard to think of a historical figure whose life has been mythologized as much as Grigory Rasputin. The wild-looking, mysterious monk came from a remote part of Siberia and quickly ingrained himself into the high society of -of turn-of-the-century Russia. Before long, he had the ear of the Tsar and Tsarina themselves, and became one of their closest advisors. But the myth-making that made Rasputin who he is remembered as today began during his lifetime. Depending on who you asked, he was a prophet, a guardian angel, a lifesaver, and the only one of the Tsar's advisors who had his best interests in mind. Or, he was a con artist, a sexual deviant, a womanizer, a spy, a rapist, maybe even the literal antichrist. Rasputin had this polarizing effect on people, both during and after his lifetime. It earned him a wide following and a huge amount of power, but it also earned him his fair share of assassination attempts. This is Foiled. Episode 6, The Antichrist. Just as a quick note, while most of the rest of Europe had adopted the Gregorian calendar in the 1500s, Russia was still using the Julian calendar until 1918. So even though a modern calendar would say Rasputin was born on January 21st, he would have known the day as January 9th. Since this is a story that takes place in Russia pre-calendar change, I'm going to stick with the old style dates for the most part. Grigory Yefimovich Rasputin was born on January 9, 1869, in a Siberian village called Pokrovskoy. He was the fifth child of his parents Anna and Yefim, but was the first to survive infancy. His entire family was illiterate, and he himself wouldn't learn to read until adulthood. Testimonies from locals paint a picture of a troubled young man who frequently got drunk and liked to steal things. When he was 18, he married Preskovia Dubrovina, a peasant woman from a neighboring village. The couple had seven children, of whom three survived into adulthood. In spite of everything that Rasputin did throughout his life, Preskovia remained devoted to him up to his dying day. Other than the things I've just said, next to nothing is known about the first 30 years of Rasputin's life. He very well could have been born, lived, and died in obscurity, all in the same village, like millions of Russians had done for centuries. But something called to him. Some say it was God. Some say he wanted to escape his local reputation. Some say he wanted to just get out of the work of the village. Whatever drove him, he began to go on religious pilgrimages sometime in the 1890s. This wasn't something that made him unusual, though. Straniki, or religious pilgrims, would wander endlessly from holy place to holy place, relying on the kindness of whoever they came across for food and lodging. There were something like a million of these pilgrims in Russia around the year 1900, but none of them would go as far as Rasputin did. Everywhere he went, he learned about people, and he inevitably had an impact on them, too. He learned to read people, and he became extremely good at it. With just one unnerving stare from his cold, blue eyes, he seemed to almost be able to know their thoughts. Intimidating as Rasputin was, he was also incredibly charismatic. His lack of education and formal affiliation with the church made his sermons very personable and accessible to the average person. He developed a loyal following in these years, which would take him all the way to St. Petersburg. On November 1st, 1905, Nicholas II, Emperor of Russia, wrote in his diary, quote, We made the acquaintance of a man of God, Grigory, from Tobolsk province, end quote. Earlier that day, the Tsar and his wife, Alexandra, met Grigory Rasputin. 
and so began a friendship which would last over a decade. The Romanov rulers were fascinated and impressed by Rasputin. You see, in 1905, Russia was in the middle of a revolution. The country had just been badly defeated in a war against Japan, which exacerbated the already stagnant and repressive state of the regime, and there were uprisings throughout the empire. But Nicholas and Alexandra believed wholeheartedly that they were chosen by God to rule Russia absolutely, and that pesky things like elections and constitutions got in the way of that. In the midst of this, here came Rasputin, telling the couple exactly what they wanted to hear. Before long, the revolution ended, and the Russian government adopted a legislative assembly called the Duma, which the Tsar would spend the next decade fighting. But that wasn't the end of Rasputin's time in the imperial court. The Tsar and Tsarina had already had a history of surrounding themselves with mystics and holy men. Their last spiritual advisor was a man known as Monsieur Philippe, who before his death predicted the birth of a male heir in the imperial family. After having four daughters, the Empress Alexandra gave birth to a son, Alexei, in 1904. But Alexei was born with a condition called hemophilia, which stops a person's body from being able to produce blood clots. This means that the slightest injury, externally or internally, could lead to fatal blood loss. During a particularly bad attack, Rasputin was able to stabilize the boy's condition where doctors were not. There are all manner of theories as to how he did this. Did he have divine healing powers? Did he hypnotize Alexei? Did it have something to do with the fact that Rasputin kicked the doctors out of the room and therefore prevented them from giving the boy aspirin, which we know now is a blood thinner? Whatever he did, it worked, and he had secured his place at the side of the royal family. Rasputin became a regular fixture among the high society of St. Petersburg and would visit the Romanovs frequently. He would read and pray with the children at night, and he even referred to the emperor and empress as papa and mama. Nicholas and Alexandra considered him to be their close friend, and as their friend, they protected him amid the scandal he caused in St. Petersburg. Rumors swirled in the capital about the mysterious figure at the side of the Tsar and Tsarina, that he was a con artist, a fraud. In some circles, he was a spy. In others, he was a cultist. Almost everyone agreed that he was a womanizer and sexual deviant, and accusations of sexual assault were commonplace. As far as the imperial family was concerned, it was all lies. But there was truth to some, maybe even most of these rumors, though it's difficult to get at the full truth amid the hearsay and blatant storytelling. There is no doubt, though, that whatever Rasputin was doing, he had made himself some enemies. Sergei Mikhailovich Trufanov, often just known as Iliador, was a priest and monk in the Russian Orthodox Church. He met Rasputin sometime around the turn of the century, and the two were initially friends. Iliador made himself controversial in the church with his firebrand speeches, in which he attacked revolutionaries, industrialists, and Russia's Jewish population for being in a massive conspiracy to take over the empire. In these anti-Semitic rants, he praised a terrorist group known as the Black Hundreds, which was a hyper-nationalist, monarchist militia that frequently attacked Jewish Russians. Rasputin and Iliador had a falling out, though the exact cause isn't entirely clear. Claims have been made that it was over Rasputin's behavior towards women, or that Iliador was jealous of Rasputin's friendship with the royal family, despite not being an official member of the church. 
Regardless, this falling out led to the conspiracy-minded Iliador spreading rumors about Rasputin, including that he was having an affair with the Empress Alexandra. Despite there being no evidence to back that claim up, it's a rumor that still exists over a century later. In 1912, Iliador wrote a letter in his own blood that renounced the Russian Orthodox Church, which read in part, quote, I have implored you, begged you, to defend Christ's bride, the Russian Church, from the violence and desecrations of the libertine Grishka Rasputin. You have not repented. You have not even expressed a desire to do so. All I can say to you now is, may your abode be empty, may eternal truth judge you, end quote. He was kicked out of the church the next month. Though Iliador didn't have much real power to speak of after this, he had developed a following of his own during his career, and one of these followers decided that something needed to be done about Rasputin. Hionia Guseva was a woman who lived in the city of Tsaritsyn, the city which would later be known as Stalingrad. Not much is known about her early life, but at some point she lost most of her nose, and in its place there was a triangular hole. She worked in Tsaritsyn as a seamstress, and had for years been an adamant follower of Iliador. Guseva blamed Rasputin's betrayal for the downfall of Iliador. He himself told her of the crimes of Rasputin, both real and imagined. Then, she read a newspaper article about Rasputin, which contained accusations written by Iliador. It was then that Guseva decided to kill Rasputin. She bought a 15-inch dagger and went to the capital to look for him but he wasn't there. So instead, she headed for his hometown, hoping he would return there to visit. He would. On July 13th of the Old Style Calendar, 1914, Grigory Rasputin was visiting his hometown of Prokofskoy. He was at his family home early in the afternoon, eating a meal, when he received a telegram in the mail requesting to come take pictures of Rasputin's family and home. He quickly read the telegram and wrote a reply, then left the house to try to catch up with the mailman. He'd barely left his yard before coming across a woman. She was wearing black, and her head and face was completely covered except for her eyes. She bowed at Rasputin's feet, and he told her she didn't have to do that. He reached for his wallet to give her some money, assuming she needed it. But before he could do that, Kiona Guseva pulled out her dagger and plunged it into Rasputin's abdomen. Blood poured everywhere, and he yelled out for help. He ran away from Guseva, but she started chasing after him, bloody dagger in hand. Rasputin kept running until he came across a big stick on the ground, which he picked up and swung down on his attacker's head. Guseva was incapacitated and then apprehended, taken to the local jail. But it looked like Rasputin was going to die. He was taken home, where he quickly fell unconscious. Alexander Vladimirov, a doctor from a nearby city, was called to see what could be done. But if they tried to move Rasputin to a hospital, he would bleed out, so the operation was done in the house. The dagger had twisted and cut his intestines in multiple places, and Dr. Vladimirov would have to perform surgery to save him. Getting major surgery done in a residential home in early 20th century rural Siberia doesn't sound like it would be the best for one's health but Rasputin was lucky with the doctor he'd been sent. The wounds were sutured and sewed up, and the rest of the abdominal cavity was opened to check for other wounds. Then, Rasputin was put back together, covered in bandages and floating in and out of consciousness, but alive. 
Newspapers all over the world reported on the attack, and most, including the New York Times, speculated that Rasputin wouldn't live much longer. But he did. In the next few weeks, he began to gradually recover, and he would be back at the side of the imperial family before long. Kionia Guseva was taken to jail and questioned. She called Rasputin the Antichrist, as well as, quote, a false prophet, slanderer, a violator of women, and a seducer of honest maidens, end quote. She claimed she acted alone, and said that she was trying to follow in the footsteps of the prophet Elijah, who killed false prophets. She was declared insane and put in an asylum, where she would remain for a few years. After the overthrow of the monarchy, she was set free, and tried to assassinate a church patriarch in Moscow in 1919, exactly five years after her attempt on Rasputin's life. Like her first attack, this one also failed. Since she was already known to have tried to kill Rasputin, the Soviet authorities took it easy on her. What happened to her after that is unknown, and she disappears from history after this. Iliador, for his part, claimed to have nothing to do with the assassination attempt, and then proceeded to flee the country in disguise, which is a good tactic when trying to look innocent. In all reality, though, the police were after him, and he was accused of trying to kill the Tsar's friend. In Imperial Russia, whether that was true or not likely didn't amount to much. He wound up in New York City, where he lived until his death in 1952. Even though Rasputin almost died, he had not yet reached the height of his power. Whether through his own initiative, through God's blessing, or a deal with the devil, Rasputin would go on to be one of the most powerful people in all of Russia. That would come in the next few years, as the country faced its biggest test yet, World War I. But war abroad did not mean that there was peace at home, and Rasputin would have to contend with more threats to his power and to his life. The question we'll have to deal with next week is how much more would he be able to take? <laughs> 